0: welcome to this 13th episode of the Eurocast, where a bunch of unqualified political scientists at the University of Oxford discuss politics, elections, ideas, and whatever makes Europe tick. I'm your host, Nick, and I'm joined by Leo, Marco, and Simone. The Eurocast has no official sponsor except for listeners like you, so please support us and our work on Patreon and follow us on our Twitter account at Eurocast underscore You can also find us on our website, EurocastOx.com. This episode will be about this week's elections in Ireland, And to help us make sense of what was a genuine earthquake of a result, we'll be joined by Professor Aidan Reagan, who is an Associate Professor of Political Economy at the University College Dublin. So maybe before
1: asking our guests some more in-depth questions about the analysis of the results, it may be useful um, to have a quick rundown of who the main parties in
0: Ireland are and what the election results were. In Ireland, there's mainly three parties you have to worry about. You have... Fianna Fáil, Fina Gael, and Sinn Féin. Fianna Fáil is a big tent, centrist, um, sometimes a bit to the populist and nationalistic side of things. And uh, Fianna Gael is slightly more market liberal and somewhat less nationalist than um, Fianna Fáil. Sinn Féin is probably whom you're most familiar with. And they're Left-wing populists with, with a strong nationalist uh, and unification streak to them.
1: And in terms of um, results in and sheet- and seat shares?
0: Fine Gael got 22.2%, Fianna Gael got 20.9%, and Sinn Féin got 24.5% of the vote, with the Greens getting 7.1%, Labour getting 44 and uh, Independents uh, gaining 19 seats.
1: Yeah, I think it's also important to to, to kind of um, clear up how votes are translated into seats. So we have an SDV uh, system, so single transferable vote, where voters on the ballot paper, they, they rank candidates. And then um, through a series of counts where some candidates may be elected or eliminated, um, d- depending on whether a certain threshold or quota is exceeded, um, so the surplus votes of an elected candidate and all the votes of uh, of an eliminated candidate then redistributed to second and third, etc uh, preference of the voters. Um, so this, for example, also shows you why um, Sinn Féin's success also have helped to lift the votes of other smaller left-wing parties because they got all the, 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 the kind of transfers and preferences of Sinn Féin. Um, so... For a more in-depth analysis, we are now joined by Professor Aidan Reagan, who is a Professor of Political Economy at University College Dublin. Thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
1: So the success of Sinn Féin is probably the biggest story of the Irish election. To some extent we could have seen it coming because um, they uh, did very well in 2011 and 2016 already, so they've been a long term rise. Um, where do all these votes come from, and how have the demographics of Sinn Fein's um, voters changed over this period?
2: Yeah, so the first thing I would say is I don't think it's true that we saw this coming. <clears throat> I don't think anybody saw this coming, not nearly to the same extent. Uh, as it materialized, they effectively got 25% of the first preference vote, which is effectively a quarter of the electorate, right? Um, In the previous election, um, they had about 14%. They themselves only ran 46 candidates in this national election, which will tell you that they did not expect to do as well as they did, because if they did, they would have ran much more candidates. And if they ran more candidates, they would now be in a position to significantly lead the government, but they only have 37 seats, and if they had ran more candidates, they could potentially have gotten up to 50 seats. Furthermore, um, only nine months ago, in the local elections and the European elections, they did really badly. Uh, They lost significantly in the local elections. In fact, some of their candidates who just topped the poll in multiple constituencies across Ireland Lost their seats in the local elections nine months ago. So nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw the quarter, the the fact that there were 25% of the the, the vote, first preference vote, and that they would effectively be, be more or less, they won this election. Now, the question then is, well, why? What happened in those nine months? What happened that gave them this big surge? And I think that is the important question. And as you can imagine, political scientists were now kind of working through the data, looking at the exit polls, looking at the detailed demographics, trying to get a sense of what happened and what's going on. But ultimately, from my perspective, this is the dog that finally barked after the financial crisis. This is the third election since the Great Recession, uh, since the crash of the economy in 2008. You had an election in 2011, you had an election in 2016, And there's a lot of volatility, parliamentary volatility, electoral volatility. But there was no real challenge. There was no new supply, new party emerging that was trying to capture uh, a large part of the moving vote. You had effectively eight years of austerity, let's say a decade of austerity. You have an economic recovery. That economic recovery is very much built around foreign direct investment. But the winners and losers of that recovery are, are clearly observable. And the number one issue that's facing the, 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 the electorate and has been cited consistently is housing. And that affects different people in different ways. So to answer your question directly, what's the underlying demographic of Sinn Féin support? Well, first and foremost, their core vote, their core anchor, let's say that kind of 10% that they've had for about 10 years, is a kind of it's 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 an urban working class vote, right? Typically an urban working class vote. And very much built around the story of nationalism and Irish unity and Irish unification and so on. However, they've expanded significantly beyond that. And what you're observing is a kind of Bernie Sanders, Corbyn type dynamic, whereby Sinn Féin have become the party of choice for young people. And in particular, those who are under the age of 35, 36. So they're a party of choice for young people who simply are fed up with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who they see as the establishment. It's not necessarily a vote for Sinn Fein, rather, it's a vote against being a fallen Fine Gael. However, when you break the demographics down further, what you observe is that, remarkably, Sinn Fein are now the most popular party for every age group under the age of 65, right? Under the age of 65. Now, just marginally, the real big, big demographic support is under the age of 40. And even more so, if you break it down further, if you own your own property outright, you are more likely to vote Fine Gael, Fianna Fall. If you're renting, if you're in the global authority sector, you're going to vote Sinn Féin. So housing and wealth inequality is a clear cleavage that's intersecting with income and inequality, educational divides. And fundamentally, from my perspective, it's, it's, it is a new manifestation of social class politics.
3: So, Aiden Until recently, and probably even more so uh, prior to 2011, Sinn Féin was something of a pariah for other parties and for many voters due to its historical association with the IRA. Uh, That perception seems to have shifted somewhat in recent years. Uh, Should we be thinking about the mainstreaming of Sinn Féin as a top-down or as a bottom-up process? For example, like... um is it mainly as a result of changing party strategies and uh, changing image and leadership? Or is it a consequence of changes in the, in the electorate whereby the stigma is just not relevant to voters anymore?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. And people are teasing this question out now at the moment. I think it is fundamentally about a generational shift. Most people under the age of 40, when they think Sinn Féin, they see Sinn Féin as the main opposition to Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael. They see Sinn Fein as kind of left populist, right? The left narrative, who have a clear story to tell on housing, build public housing, build 100,000 public houses, tackle homelessness, tax the big tech companies more, tax the banks more, tax the super rich more, give the young, the, the working man a break. This is the story. We can work out the, the, the feasibility of the fiscal uh, dynamics of this, because from a technical perspective, these are highly problematic. And Sinn Fein have never been in government, so they've never actually had to govern under the constraints and the trade-offs and compromises that come with governing a complex economy and all the complexity comes with public policy. But they have a story to tell, and stories is what matters ultimately, I think, in elections. So, so, so they have managed to capture that. And I think for young people in particular, and when I say young people, I don't mean just under 25. I mean youngish, like people under the age of 40, let's say. They just don't think of... About-
1: As a 26-year-old, I thank you for that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I think for, for that group, Sinn Féin is is not associated with the IRA, with the conflict, with the troubles. It's not what they think about. Now, as, as social scientists, we can puzzle that and question why that is the case and, you know, think about people's kind of time horizon and so on, because for older voters, they most definitely do think about Sinn Féin and the troubles and conflict and violence. And they do kind of treat them as a prior part. However, during this election, it's quite interesting to observe Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, two centre-right parties who have dominated the history of the Irish state for over hundred years since the foundation of the state. Their approach to the campaign was: we will not go near Sinn Féin, we will not touch Sinn Féin. They even said Sinn Féin were a morally problematic party, a very polite Irish way equivalent of kind of Hillary Clinton's deplorable comment, right? And that really annoyed a lot of people. I think It annoyed a lot of people because it was like, hold on a second. You two got you two parties have governed this state for 100 years. We have a massive housing crisis, a healthcare crisis. Cost of living is going up to the roof. Quality of life issues are not, you know, are really important. You know, yes, the economy is doing well and macro indicators, but quality of life issues are. We don't feel it. And you were telling us that these guys are, are morally problematic. I think that actually rubbed people up the wrong way. And it has completely counter... It has been backfired um, on, on, on the two main parties. However, the two main parties, particularly Fine Gael, even after the election, even after losing the election, are still kind of using that language. My own view, which probably would not be widely shared uh, amongst, let's say, uh, in, in Dál Air and, and, and large parts of the media, is that this is, this is actually this is having the counter effect. I I think it's having the opposite effect of what's intended, primarily because most young people do not think about Sinn Féin in those terms. It might work for older, economically secure, wealthy voters in the south side of Dublin who are over the age of 55, but for the average 35-year-old paying nearly half, three-quarters of the disposable income and rent, it's just not going to wash.
1: In in terms of the two main parties, the Finn Gael and Fold, Fáil, so... What went wrong for them? Was it a policy failure or was the formula of the minority government that was a problem or was simply that they didn't distinguish themselves enough enough from one another? And which one of the two do you think has to fear most from Sinn Féin now being a major party in a three-party system?
2: Yeah, good question. So firstly, what went wrong for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and which of them are most likely to lose out in competition with Sinn Féin. Obviously, there is a penalty for governing. And Fine Gael have been in government, in effect, for nine years. So I think the incumbent anti incumbent vote was very strong. And that has to be part of the story. Despite the fact that people think that Fine Gael, broadly speaking, managed the macroeconomy quite well, the public finances relatively well, and are perceived to be relatively good, you know, managers of the economy, which is what people like David Soskis and Torben Iverson would say is what's most important, but empirically that doesn't seem to actually hold up because people voted on issues of quality of life and public services and cost of living uh, and those kind of issues. Um, so, so, so the Fine Gael were penalized for being government. Finna fall. keep in mind, were not in coalition with Fine Gael, but they had a confidence and supply arrangement with Fine Gael. Which meant that they were ultimately, in the eyes of the electorate, keeping Fine Gael in government for effectively pre- four years. And again, the electorate would, would 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 say, "Yeah, they managed Brexit particularly well." But Brexit did not feature in this election at all. It was cited, I think, by one percent of the of the of the voters in the exit poll as being the issue uh, that they faced. Brexit was one percent. Immigration was one percent. It was housing, health, cost of living, childcare. Those issues completely dominated. Uh, Thinking And the electorate, I think, blamed Fianna Fáil for keeping Fine Gael in government, particularly when clearly a large part of the electorate thought that Fine Gael were mishandling and not tackling the homelessness crises, the housing crises, which I think we should talk about because it's a really important issue, particularly for voters. And my own view as a political scientist, political economist, that housing is going to be the issue that increasingly shapes social conflict in Western democracies for quite some time. Um, so, so, so I think that being an incumbent, I mean, punished for being in government is clearly part of the story. However, I think on top of that, there's a bigger structural shift taking place whereby you have a lot of voters who really don't have a home, right? Who probably voted Fianna Gael in the last election and who voted Sinn Féin in this election, which is, which is remarkable. Um, so there, there, you know, we know as political scientists, we can talk about this in terms of dealignment, realignment, but it seems to me there's big de taking place but it doesn't necessarily mean those voters are Sinn Féin kind of party members who are going to vote for them regardless. Um, but for whatever reason, the brand of Sinn Féin, the message, and this is back to the previous question, the brand was very strong and people were voting for the party, not the candidate with Sinn Féin. As I said, there was one Sinn Féin candidate who went on holidays during the election and the poll oh, just because her party was doing so well. This is, this is really unusual in Irish politics. So the brand was quite strong. So you had that kind of look. They've been in government, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael. Let's go for something different. Let's, we want change. What's the change? Who's going to lead that change? And they looked across and said "Well, Sinn Féin are probably the best bet. And a bit, it is a bit of a two-finger salute to the establishment as well. Maybe some people in the next election, well, maybe not Sinn Féin this time, but the last time we gave the guys a bit of a kicking and they got the message. Um, But let's see, now the the issue, and we'll talk about it shortly in terms of government formation, how will that work out? Fianna Fáil are the party with the biggest identity crisis here. Fianna Fáil are going to be in competition and are going to lose out much more so from the rise of Sinn Féin. And I say that for two reasons. Firstly, historically, Fianna Fáil have been anchored in kind of the traditional old working class. Now, keep in mind, Ireland did not have an industrial working class, a strong Labour party, Fianna Fáil, in a sense, were always a functional equivalent, a centrist left ish party. Um, you know, they were they they were the kind of party that on a, a class basis voting typically were stronger among smaller farmers, rural, you know, small business owners, and 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 the and the urban working class. That's obviously changed quite a bit. Sinn Fein are now in that space. Sinn Fein have effectively replaced Fianna Fall as the as as the working class party in Ireland, to put it simply. And we could talk about the nuances of what you mean by class and so on, but that's, the, that's, the, that's really the simplistic, particularly in urban areas. And as, and as you mentioned earlier on, they have expanded beyond that into more urban, liberal, educated voters, which typically would you know go elsewhere, which is, which is kind of interesting. So Fianna Fáil had the most uh, to fear. And Fianna Fáil, I think, have a real identity crisis now. Because if you look at the demographics, if you look at who voted for them, the, 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 the only the, the people to predict the, the probability of who's going to vote Fianna Fail is basically old male and goes to church, right? And that demographic is just declining. And I think Fianna Fail have a real identity crisis because it's not sure where they go. And keep in mind, in this election, the Greens did very well, the Social Democrats did very well. You know, there was a campaign online and offline, vote left, transfer left, and we need to think about that in terms of the, the, the electoral system in Ireland. The electoral system in Ireland, the single transferable vote system, means you list the candidates, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way down, 20 candidates if there's there. And there was a very strong push. Basically, you owe Sinn Féin, number one, transfer to the left for number two. And that seemed to have worked because the Social Democrats, the Greens, really, and the people before profit, anti-austerity alliance, solidarity, these kind of more independent further left groups, they all reap the benefits of this too. So now all of a sudden, for the first time in the history of the Irish state, you actually seem to have a relatively large left bloc in Parliament.
4: Thank you very much, Aidan. Uh, just before we dive into a bit more depth when it comes on to the uh, politics of housing, uh, I just wondered, beyond the headline narrative of the major Sinn Féin victory, what are other aspects of the election results that strike you as significant, but maybe we're missing in all this?
2: The first thing I think, and it touches on the final point I made there, is the Greens did very well. <clears throat> um, and I think the Greens are eating into the Fine Gael centre-right liberal vote because in urban city areas, in Dublin city here, the Greens, I think they. I think the final count now is they want 12 seats. That's quite a lot. I mean, that's by far their most uh, successful election ever. Um, even though their first preference vote share <coughs> was about 8%, how that transfers in the seats was much higher precisely because of this vote-left, transfer-left strategy that a lot of the electorate seem to have adopted. Um, and in Dublin City, there's only one constituency in Dublin in the, in, whereby the left did not get a 50% plus majority. So what you're observing in Dublin is much like in other urban liberal metropolitan areas, a green-left preference for amongst a large part of the electorate. These... Those who vote green are typically, quite frankly, university educated, economically secure, have access to the new economy, are doing relatively well from globalization, and are thinking about those quality of life issues in terms of greener spaces, better cycle lanes, and climate action, public transport. Those things typically, as you can imagine, your average university professor was probably thinking about, right? But, but, but they are... It's, it's not such a... But that's part of the story, too. <clears throat> the second part of the story is the rise of the Social Democrats, Uh, They are a breakaway from the Labour Party after the Labour Party have gone into government. They have done particularly well, very good vote management. They've taken six seats. And again, they are self-identified on the centre-left. So in Parliament, between the Greens, the Social Democrats, the Labour Party took five seats. You have about a centre-left grouping of about 25 seats. And then on top of that, you have about 10 uh, further left seats. So there is a kind of left story to be told here, whether that was consciously in the minds of the electors, we could debate and discuss. But on top of the rise of Sinn Féin, it's this vote-left, transfer-left story that's interesting. <clears throat> now, the other thing is that Fina Gael did particularly badly and Fianna Fall did even worse. And I think those two parties, um, particularly Fianna Fall, are in a bit of shock at the moment. They're kind of trying to understand why they did so badly. Um, and I think it touches on... Some of the issues that we've just raised, and we'll talk about in terms of uh, problem-solving, in terms of housing, and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, as someone who's looking to rent in Oxford, housing is a is is you know is a policy that is near to my heart. So we may in dive into this um, a little more in depth. So first of all, how bad it is the the housing problem in Ireland, and how does a country that ten years ago had a property bubble end up with a massive undersupply? of um, of housing.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's tease this out a little bit uh, for your listeners because, you know, it is complex. So let's start in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. The property bubble that had emerged in Ireland in the previous 10 years, driven by cheap credit, mortgage lending, everybody was taking out mortgages they couldn't afford, household debt was going up and prices were skyrocketing the whole property ladder dynamic, you know, buy a house, flip it, get all this whole financialization, commodified asset housing took hold. The state, you know, basically, for much like in the UK for the best part of 20 years at this stage had privatized the stock of housing. And we're not really in the space of providing public and social housing. Because mortgage is incredible, so freely available, you know, house, it, was, it was easy to get a mortgage. The crisis did, that all went up in, in smoke. <clears throat> there was a balance sheet crisis, the banks are trying to deal with their with the, with the debt problem. Homeowners who took out mortgages, they can no longer afford are a negative equity have to deal with their debt problem. The central bank has to deal with the debt problem. The department of finance has to deal with the debt problem. There's only one way you can deal with a debt problem and that's to get prices rising again. Now, it's not like all these actors were sitting around the table saying, hey, listen, let's restrict supply. Let's stop, you know, let's do all these things to stop kind of mitigating price rises. No, but there was an inbuilt incentive so effectively, at that stage, as the state was managing the crisis, <clears throat> implementing pretty harsh austerity measures, you know, you had this situation whereby house building was came to stop. Right? There was no new stock of housing being provided. Meanwhile, in the same time period, Ireland is generating this uh, doubling down on its foreign direct investment growth model, and you have massive inward investment from, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft are expanding, Intel is expanding, you know, the high-tech sectors of the economy, high income, high productivity, this is all dependent on inward migration of workers from across the European Union. These workers, pretty good wages, et cetera, are driving up the price of non-tradables, particularly rental accommodation. So you have more workers on better pay competing with local workers on worse pay for a limited supply of rental accommodation. Uh, with one obvious implication, prices go up. So then people have to consistently move out, and then all of a sudden, what began as a private rental crisis turned into a homelessness crisis, because not only were workers not able to access housing, all of a sudden if you're a low-income earner, and you don't quite qualify for social housing, or even if you do, there's no social housing being provided, you're effectively being pushed onto the streets. So within a couple of years, it changed very dramatically, Ireland Dublin had suddenly a massive homelessness crisis, much like you see in, in, in any city with big tech companies and so on. And there was a sense, you know, the government were not reacting or responding fast enough to this. Then, on top of that, the government intentionally, given that they had now basically a lot of distressed this, this assets, commercial property, residential real estate property, setting up NAMA, the, the bad bank, they needed to get rid of these distressed assets in order to manage the debt problem. And they basically invited international investors, real estate investment trusts, international capital, to come into the country, buy up these distressed assets at relatively knocked down prices. Those who had access to international capital, given that you had negative interest rates at this stage globally, I mean, the average person can't get a mortgage, but, but big capital can get money. They sat on all of this, so big residential property, international finances bought up a lot of the land and so forth and just sat on it and did nothing. So the pressure was, hey, you know, you need to push this into supply. The reason why they were sitting on it was they wanted prices to go up and up and up. And it was only when prices went up to a certain level, they're not quite as high as 2006, but have gone right back up, did they begin to develop and release this back into, into the market. So We had a perfect storm of all these things that meant that ultimately, in places where people wanted to live, where the jobs are, in the cities, there was not enough housing. That meant there was a private rental crisis, that spilled over into a homelessness crisis, and now you have a situation whereby people in their 30s, mid-30s, keep in mind in 2008, if you were 18 years old, you're 30 years old today. In 2008, if you were 25, you're 37 today. It's that generation of people who feel, quite frankly, that they've been screwed by Fianna Fáil, and Finnegale, because they can't access housing and, and, and this is causing a major uh, level of this this the how to put it let's just say to put it politely people are aggrieved
3: and just a quick follow-up question on that um I want to know how has this issue of housing been politicized uh particularly how have the parties differentiated themselves and as the housing crisis hit during this election particularly uh, probably Sinn Féin would be the most interesting one
1: yeah, so I mean,
2: basically for the FENAGael, for the most part, have adopted a position that the market will solve this problem. Now clearly that's just not true and it's not empirically verifiable. And I think they themselves have realized that. So over the past 24 months, probably too late. They began to say, no, actually, we the state needs to be much more involved. And they did commit to saying, look, and being much more public about the need to have social housing and so forth. But still, the, the, the culture within Fine Gael is that very much, you know, we need to provide the incentives and the regulatory structure to encourage the private supply of housing, for-profit housing. But as soon as you do that for-profit housing, obviously, anybody who's going to get involved in real estate is going to do it on the basis to make money. And therefore, they will only do it on the assumption that prices will rise. And therefore, they need to have housing as a property asset, a commercial asset. Whereas most people are saying, look, we want to stop thinking about housing. not most people; a lot of people are saying we need to stop thinking about housing as an asset and actually provide homes. So Fianna Fall kind of were in between and didn't have quite a clear message. They said they wanted to have rent freezes, but then they changed their mind. But Sinn Féin were absolutely clear and unapologetic. We want rent freezes. We're going to implement rent freezes. We're going to stop the people being rented. You cannot. That's a, fundamentally we're going to have a rent freeze, and we're going to build a hundred thousand public homes on public land. Now, whether, again, whether this is feasible or not, of course, we could work out the impossibility. hundred thousand. They're going to build a hundred thousand houses at sixty thousand euros a house. How they're going to do that? Where they're going to get those workers? These are all things. But still, there was an ambition and there was a clear vision that they were articulating. And their their housing spokesperson is a is somebody called Ono Green who in Ireland now has become one of the the public figures of housing, very articulate, very smart, has published a book on public housing, really knows the nuances and the specifics of this. And when people see him talking, and then they look to Fina Gael and say, no, we want this guy to solve the problem.
3: Sounds like uh, probably what uh, drove this shift in the election, based on what you're saying, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, very, very important part of the story.
1: Yeah. So maybe if we can have um, a last point in this, this kind of segment on the comparative politics of housing, because housing obviously pertains to wealth inequality rather than income inequality. So how do you think the politics, so the political alignments that emerge from wealth inequality are different from the traditional class alignments? And I also wanted to submit to you, like, a theory, something that I thought about, that because wealth inequality has more of a generational dimension, um, it also fits much better with value divides. So, on the other hand, the politics of wealth of income inequality has is, is less of a generational dimension. So, value divides on the kind of you know cultural stuff cut across it. So, basically, what you have is that. In countries with higher wealth inequality relative to income inequality, so like the UK and Ireland, et cetera, you would have polarisation. Whilst in, like, in continental countries, because the two dimensions are more crisp, cross-cutting, you will have fragmentation. I don't know if, if that was clear. Yeah, I mean,
2: <clears throat> what I would say is that they are cross-cutting and they do intersect. And on the one hand, <clears throat> so let me just put it anecdotally, right, Let's just say that you are coming from a higher income household, right? That you come from a family, you know, economically secure with access to inheritance and your parents can provide you with a gift of a large income sum in order to facilitate you to take out a mortgage. So in that sense, without access to income, you can't develop savings and you cannot develop the possibility to buy a mortgage. And you see that in Dublin in particular. Those who seem to be in a position to buy housing Seem to be in a position to generate more savings than everybody else, despite the fact that we're all are, that you're working in the same job. And again, you don't have to be a genius to figure out where that money is coming from. It's coming from the bank of mom and dad. So I do think income does play a role there. But you're quite right that yes, it has got housing does have a slightly different kind of generational effect. Um, and I think housing capital makes up housing and land constitutes 75-80% of capital wealth in Ireland. And therefore, people who own houses or who have mortgages have an inbuilt incentive to want prices to rise because they get a net wealth effect. And of course, nobody wants their wealth to fall. Nobody wants to feel poorer. And that net wealth effect, I think, does play into the hands of some parts of the elected and Fine Gale voters in particular, and large parts of Fina Fall voters don't want property prices to fall. Where you do have a generation of people who may, as you say, come from, <clears throat> you know, let's just say upper middle class families who actually do want prices to fall because they actually do want to be able to buy houses in places where they want to live. So the underlying politics of housing and wealth inequality, I think what we're observing is an intragenerational class, a conflict that overlaps with social class in interesting ways. But the question, and it's an empirical question, you know, which one predominates, which one do you really see playing out over time? Some people would say it's really a generational conflict. That's really what it boils down to. Um, My own view would be that, no, social class and income uh, still plays an important role here. Um, But then you get into questions of economic geography and and housing planning and urban development. And at some point, you know, questions emerge on infrastructure, public transport. So, I mean, these things, it's it's, again, it's the, the mantra in Ireland, particularly from the government, has been more supply, more supply just build more houses. But the kind of thinking then is, well, why would you want to build houses in places where nobody wants to live? You build a housing estate with no train, with no public transport, with no services. That's not necessarily a good way to develop urban planning. So all of a sudden questions of infrastructure, urban planning uh, become intersected with questions of public transport and housing. And I don't think the way governments and depart- departments in government and ministries in government and agencies in government are set up, are set up to deal with these cross-cutting issues in the way that they probably ought to be.
0: I think now is probably a good time to to push it back into politics and to move on to some level of speculation. So why don't we talk for a minute about government formation? Um, So it's clearly going to be ripe with difficulties and may even lead to another election, maybe. Um, Do you think that Sinn Féin's participation in government is a realistic possibility? And what are the hurdles and red lines that make it so difficult?
2: It's... We're in kind of uncharted territory and new there's a new politics there. So I think a lot of parties, observers are still trying to get their, get their heads around it all, um, because it's not quite clear. Um, it's not quite clear at all what, what way it will go. But mathematically speaking, the only way you can realistically form a stable government is to have two of the big parties, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or Sinn Fein in coalition with each other, plus one of the other smaller parties. That's the way the numbers are stacking up now. So that would mean, let's say, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Fein and the Greens, or Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens, or Fine Gael, Sinn Fein. And the, so This that's the kind of, that's what the maths ultimately add up to. So strategically, Sinn Fein are kind of out on the front because, in effect, they've won this election. They've got The popular vote, the most first preference votes. They're just one seat short uh, of being the biggest party in in the state. Um, And they've reached out to the left parties. They've said, look, we want our first preference is to have a left led coalition. And we've reached out to the Social Democrats, to the Greens, to the Labour Party, uh, to people before profit to see if we can have a conversation. Now, in reality, the numbers just aren't there for that to happen. Uh, There's only about 66 seats. You need 80 seats for a majority. Even with independence, it will be very—it's it's unlikely. So ultimately, the question that's being asked now is: Will, will Sinn Féin and Fianna Fail come together? And Fianna Fail have said, "Look, we are going to let Sinn Féin go off and try and lead and form a coalition." But realistically, realistically, um, it's going to have to involve Fianna Fail and Sinn Féin with somebody else. Fianna Gael have said, "Look, we've lost this election. We came third. We're not going into government." And I can—I just don't see Fianna Gael going into government. Now, you might then respond to me and say, well, why not Fianna Gael, Fianna fall and say, the Greens? And I think, mathematically, that would probably make sense. Ideologically, it would probably make sense. But well, Fianna Gael won't do this, and Fianna Fall will not do this, because they know that, therefore, Sinn Féin would be the main opposition for four years, and the next election they will absolutely run home, and those two parties would ultimately eliminate themselves entirely. So they're not going to do that. So... The talk ultimately at the moment is being a false Sinn Féin, but even then you're going to have another party involved. Another outcome of this, of course, is basically another election. That's a possibility.
3: So it looks like uh, the Green Party is probably going to play the role of kingmaker in this coalition-building uh, process. Is there? Do you have any sense of uh, you know the Green Party's leader Yeyman Ryan? Uh, what are his preferences in terms of a coalition? Does he lean uh, in terms of? Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, more to the right or does he? do you think he uh, would be more inclined
2: to ally with Sinn Féin? He, he really hasn't said, they haven't signaled, the Green Party are kind of interesting because he himself is based in a Dublin Southside constituency, upper income, upper middle class and he is not going to come out and say he will go into coalition with Sinn Féin as a first preference, that would hurt him quite badly. But a lot of Sinn Féin Party activist members would identify more on the left, and they will publicly say, and our publicly saying, yeah, our first preference is which in vain." but he himself is not saying that. So there's a bit of a discrepancy between the leadership there and, and the party membership. I think Eamon Ryan's position will be, we'll go into government with anybody, but what matters to us are the policies and what ministerial positions we will get. And this, these are our red lines. If, you were, if you're going to meet these policy objectives, we'll go into government with you. And in a sense, I think Sinn Féin have been saying that too. And we didn't really talk about that earlier on, and I'll just add it in now. <clears throat> I think one of the reasons why people gave Sinn Féin a chance was Sinn Féin said before and during the election, we'll talk to anybody. We want to be in government. We will go into government with anybody. We want to talk. And that makes them appealing, I think, to the electorate, where Sinn Féin, or sorry, Fianna Fáil, again say, we will not even talk to Sinn Féin. And I think, again, that had the opposite effect on, on the electorate. So, I mean, the Greens will go into government with anybody. Sinn Féin are also saying we'll have their red line issues. <clears throat> They'll have their core policy objectives. And there's talk of maybe a rotating Taoiseach, Prime Minister between Mary Lou, the leader of Sinn Féin, and Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Fáil. That's a possibility. But again, Fianna Fall and Michal Martin, in particular, the leadership of Fianna Fall have said quite clearly uh, you know, that they would not go into government with Sinn Féin. And it may be the case that Michal Martin himself <clears throat> will have to step aside to make that happen. But um, short answer is, we just don't know.
4: So, while domestic issues have dominated the election, Sinn Féin is still a recognizably nationalist party, which retains a policy of calling for a referendum north and south of the border within five years. What are the actual implications of a stronger Sinn Féin for cross-general relationships and ultimately for the prospect of uh, Irish unity?
2: Yeah, this is a good question to kind of finish up on because (coughs) this is the kind of underlying uh, tension that... Is it that people have and the party system have, and ultimately the kind of political establishment. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way, I mean basically the Mandarin and so on, the civil services, state, that they're just very uncomfortable with Sinn Fein's position on, on, on unification, Northern Ireland, and the foreign affairs, foreign international relations dimension of all of this. I mean, they can probably trash out a deal on the domestic policy stuff in politics, will ultimately lead to some sort of compromise and trade off and so on. But on this question, there's much more complexity. Um, because you're dealing with questions of identity and and, and so on. Um, So Sinn Féin will make the question of Irish unification central to any negotiation about a future government or uh, formation. Um, They've been very clear about that. It's central to what they are about. And this is the interesting thing about Sinn Féin. They are a left populist party, you could say, but also with a nationalist story to tell there's not many left parties in europe who can combine a left nationalist or sorry left populist with a nationalist story this makes them qualitatively unique probably explains why electorally they're doing much better than the left anywhere else in europe who just don't have a nationalist story to tell now, from my perspective, it's a civic nationalist story. It's about republics. It's about the republican tradition and so on. People might disagree with that, but the republican tradition in Ireland is very much anti-colonial, anti-empire, <clears throat> you know, generating the democratic conditions for self-governing and self-determination. It has a leftist dimension, always has done. And maybe there's only three regions in Europe where you see that, Ireland, Scotland, and maybe in Catalonia. And it's probably no surprise that at the election count, which in favour of winning, you could see lots of Catalan flags, for example. So, so I think they will make <clears throat> Irish unification central to their negotiations. What does that mean practically uh, for the future cross-border relation? I mean, <clears throat> they're saying they want to border poll in a given time period, but there's all sorts of constitutional issues around that. I just think they will look for some signal from whoever is in government with them that this is a key priority, that this has to be part of the conversation. And we have to build towards Irish unification. And the thing is, Brexit has sped up this process more so than previously. So even this conversation we're having now, if you had said this to me a couple of years ago, probably wouldn't have been taking it too seriously. But the fact that Brexit has happened and that there's a large, there's a growing part of the northern Irish population. It will eventually, at some stage, generate a majority in the north of Ireland. Irish unification is inevitable at some stage, right? And everybody kind of knows that. But nobody expected that the Brexit thing would speed up the conversation and accelerate the conversation in the way that it has done. So now, all of a sudden, you even have people who would previously have identified as unionists or progressive unionists in the north of Ireland saying, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about you know, how this is going to work out. Let's work out the, the dynamics of it when and how it will happen. I'm, these are the things you just can't predict.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Bye-bye. James.
0: Thanks so much, Aiden. And that's a wrap for today. We're your hosts, Nick, Leo, Marco, and Simone. We're, of course, not sponsored by anyone except for listeners like you. You can find us on our website, EurocastOx.com, on our Twitter at eurocast underscore And you can follow us at Nicholas D. James, at Pastor Mayo, at Leonardo Corella, and S underscore Van Tutum. And you can follow Professor Reagan at Aidan Reagan. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please donate to our Patreon and take a bit out of your time to spread the word. Until next time.
2: Well in the merry month of Maina from me home I started, left the girls and two and dilly broken hearted saluted, father dear, kissed me, darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears to smothered enough to reap the corn and leaf. For I was born, got a stout the bunish ghost and got and brand your pair of robes to rock the love of the bugs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky row. It's a double a want to